clip. That's what. What's the idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have Lauren Billy. So Lauren is the founder of All Bodies, and All Bodies is this platform that is all about reproductive and sexual health, a place where people can come to learn information, to connect with the services and help that really put them in control of their own health, of their own body. And uh, one of the reasons I was so excited to have her on the show today is because she's really a bold voice in the realm of gender and race. And uh, she's not afraid to speak her mind in the public domain. And I wanted to get her on to share some of her thoughts about her big idea, which is that uh, America was built on the back of white supremacy and patriarchy. And so I certainly have some feelings on this. We've had some guests on before who provided some kind of counterintuitive takes on these things. Uh, but I wanted to hear her thoughts being a white Jewish woman, uh, basically kind of existing in some of these communities, talking about race, how she's navigated those conversations, what's been challenging. We talk about the discomfort that immediately comes up in us, even wanting to talk about race. And I think that why this conversation, this podcast is so important is because we exist in a, a place now in the realm of, of social media and, and just massive polarity where it's so challenging to express or explore some of these issues of identity because it's so uh, scary that we might be falsely labeled or we might be labeled a racist or we might be labeled a misogynist just for exploring something or saying the wrong thing a single time. And what that does is it shuts down these types of conversations that are fundamental to moving forward, to expanding our mutual understanding of one another. And so we talk about some kind of grander, more systemic perspectives about how these things have parlayed into the evolution of our country. But what I think is most valuable is how we talk about practical communication techniques and mindsets that we can embody to better communicate our own ideas that we can use to better receive uh, the opinions and experiences of others. So whether you're already involved in this uh, as an activist, whether you think this is a load of shit, it's a really valuable conversation and one that I know you'll get a lot from. So without further ado, Lauren Billy. I didn't put that together that it's because she's a soccer player. So Lauren and I are talking about how my... One of my first childhood dreams uh, was to have Asian hair. And this is because I grew up uh, in Hawaii. And when I was on our travel soccer team, it was all Hawaiians, Filipinos, and Asians. And so they had this cool, wiry hair. They could do all this cool stuff with it. And I just had this boring white boy hair. And now, because I have married uh, an Asian woman, my son has Asian hair. It all comes full circle. Yeah. And they have the same face. Well, we're starting in the right place, right? We're talking about some race and race how it's contributed. Yeah. yeah. But before we get into this, welcome back to What's the Big Idea here with Lauren Billy, who's impeccably dressed in a red dress. That's so nice. Yeah. How are you feeling? I feel good. You talked about some big things happening this week. So yeah, man, I think we'll let it emerge. But, you know, we're we're here to talk about your big idea. But before we get there. I just want to understand you on a deeper level. And so how do you answer the question, what do you do? Because you have so many different things kind of going on. But when someone asks you that question, how do you tend to answer it? These days I say, well, I'm building a company. Uh, it's, it's a healthcare, a new healthcare platform that's integrative and involves technology and content. And we're starting with reproductive and sexual health. What's it called? It's called allbodies.com. And so what drove you to create All Bodies? 
I mean, you know, a lot of things. <laughs> you know how all the pieces fit together when you reflect back on the pieces? Well, I, I don't. I want to hear how they um, fit Okay, together. yeah. How, well, sh the short story is I was doing um, some community stuff with our, friend, our mutual friend Jesse at, at MediClub a couple years ago, and someone in the audience was, who's now my business partner, is a birth doula. And if you don't know what that is, you probably had one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, but, but for any listeners, yeah, yeah sure. it's um someone it's um it's someone whose job is to support and coach someone else through transformation. Yeah. That's like what a doula is, and it's actually an ancient indigenous practice. It's really amazing. Obviously, I would love a doula for all hard stuff, <laughs> but um, she was a birth doula, so she supports people who are giving birth. Yeah beginning, during, and, and, and is the most supportive of the, the day or days of um, the birth. So Ash Spivak is her name. She's amazing. And she asked me when I was doing MediClub, she saw me kind of on stage and thought, oh, she's good at leading or doing community stuff. Maybe she can help me. She asked me to help her do an event that was centering reproductive and sexual health as an interconnected um you know, overall wellness issue that, that she felt like was being siloed and forgotten and obviously had a lot of shame attached to it. So she was like, I just, there's so much interesting stuff. No one knows anything about their hormones. Like, thanks for the first time. You know, now very rare. This was like three years ago. So she was like, you know, there's a couple new products out there for reproductive health, finally. And um, I think we should do something. Yeah. And I think you can help. So um, I was like, I'm really busy. I was practicing saying no. You know how that's a thing we totally. do? So I was like, oh, totally happy to meet with you a couple of times to like give you some some thoughts. Yeah. But then the election happened of 2016 and I felt really affected by it. Particularly, I felt really, my gender felt really affected by it. I mm. think, and it's not about Hillary not being elected at all. It's about um, the way that the current president talks about women. And, or, or I guess the the idea that he is a sexual offender and no one cares <laughs> or I mean we sure. care but like no one cares enough like it's so normal yeah. that someone of the highest power can like talk about that it just it's just like it just makes me feel so bad <laughs> yeah. and unsafe and sad and so it really affected me in that way um so I was I called her up and I was like I'm totally down to help you like what do you need and I told Jesse like I'm gonna work on this project so we called it cycles and sex um, meaning reproductive cycles. We wanted to be edgy and we just threw this event and it was crazy because, you know, we faked it. Like, I didn't know, we didn't know if anyone would come or if brands would say yes. And I remember all the calls when I was just like, all right, let me pretend like I'm selling something you know, that I believe in, but I don't know if it'll work out. And, um, it was just massive success. Yeah. So blah, blah, blah. That was a long story. Basically I met this woman who asked me to help her. And then in my own I think with Trump getting elected and um, like my own relationship to gender started um, becoming really clear and I hadn't really thought about it yet. I had thought a lot about race, but not gender. So I'd say I've been in that work for the last three years and ended up leaving Jesse and the Big Quiet to work full time on this thing. Mm. Um, 900 people came to that first event and we got all this national press and made money and it was just really clear that we were something was in the air that so, so yeah. what when you bring that's incredible by the way and i remember friends coming from that and being like it, this is like a thing i remember people coming back and even like ali especially like it was really special um 
So what was the point of Cycles and Sex? You were creating that space to do what for the people that were there? And it was, was it was it primarily women, I imagine? Uh, it was primarily women, but it, we don't even use that word woman. I mean, yeah. it was like, yo, I mean, we even said, this is relevant to anyone who came from a uterus, which is everybody. <laughs> like you came out of a uterus, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like you should get it. I mean, I think, like, I mean, if you look, okay, so... The point of it was just to bring information out from like the shadows around the body um, and around sex and make it accessible, understandable, provide different perspectives. Because, yeah. you know, even as like a career woman in New York, I've heard of freezing before cycles and sex. I've heard of freezing my eggs. Like maybe I should. I'm getting older. But like, I don't know. I don't have a doctor. I mean, I don't think millennials really have a regular doctor. Not, you know, I actually have data on that. 82% of them do not. <laughs> but um, so I just think we've been kind of like walking around. We care about the truth in a way that other generations didn't. We care about our bodies and our wellness. But like se- we're all we're pretty open to sex, but also we don't have any information and no one ever taught us anything. So and like Pornhub is kind of the main place that people learn and it's really misogynistic. So um, and I feel like most girlfriends I have like were put on birth control and have no idea what's in it or like what it could do to your body and it's just weird that we put all this shit on our body and like don't know anything Mm -hmm. and I would say my doctors don't even you know the more of course now I've done so much research I know how messed up the whole system is um but like doctors aren't even hormonally trained and hormones have to do with everything and I probably don't have to take a a bunch of stuff that I've taken because um you know, it, I could have just adjusted it by eating more blueberries. <laughs> there's, you know, little things that like no one would ever recommend because there's no integrative health. So we were just trying to integrate all the things for one day and mm. say like, everybody come, the word sex is in it. It'll be fun. It'll be sexy. And it'll be like informational. And I totally. think people just vibe. It was a really, like you said, the whatever happened in that room was so special. It was very special. So Mm, it was just clear that we had we had a responsibility now people were like like i've never heard this info where do i find more totally and then how did that evolve into all bodies it took time it took time we did more events and they were successful and then you know we're first-time business builders and um i don't have saving like it just you know like how do you start a business and pay your rent (laughs) like like I mean, you know, I probably could have, we could do a, one event and I could pay my rent for like two months, but then like, you know, it's just, it was, so it was just kind of like, how, and then how do you raise a friends and family around if like your family and friends aren't super wealthy? It was just all new. So it was really, um, so we've been evolving what it is and testing stuff. And then we landed like last October on this digital, kind of like a digital version of what we did in real life. Yeah. One place where you can find an integrative approach to your health information first so that you because you're the expert of your body you have the most information so we want to like hand you a platter of options simple (laughs) that you can pick to to test what's right for you yeah and essentially we're we're doing that digitally starting with reproductive health and we just launched this thing all bodies um recently in at the end of june yeah and also so the informational aspect but also the marketplace of like actually bringing light to the products and services that are available to help people yeah it's learn shop find help so 
Um, learn is the is like content, yeah. educational content. Shop is a marketplace. Yeah. Tech and you know actual products you can buy. Um, they're all really cool and mostly founded by women. All for the most part, every single one is like a very new product in the last five years, seven years. Yeah. Um, and then and some of them are like the only on the market because they're so new and no one has ever tried to solve that issue before. Yeah. And then lastly is find help, which is you know the mecca. I love it because it's like we've curated practitioners of different modalities. So you can go in and search a pain point that you're dealing with or look through different modalities, many of which, if you haven't done much alternative medicine, you may have never heard of, but they're actually, this is related to our topic, like, you know, ancient indigenous practices that were, that were kind of erased when, um, you know, when, when places were colonized. So it's exciting to be able to bring things out that, that are very integrative and allow people to heal mostly like through their body and earth yeah. not to be like super hippie yeah, i love western medicine too yeah. but like we haven't really been paying attention to these other things yeah like you just said an integrated approach like mm -hmm. something that is inclusive of all modalities that are available yeah and there's some things that are not as known mm -hmm. so you know you talked about bringing light to some of these issues in the realm of of health and specifically like you don't use the term woman but you know, you talk about like the type of like hormonal, like negligence. So just people not knowing kind of what was going on from a doctor standpoint, you talked about, you know, caring about race earlier on, which I want to understand. And, you know, we've, we've already established, at least in my eyes, like, again, like this is an issue that you really care about that you're stewarding forward. And the point of what's the big idea is to bring people on and to talk about a singular idea that they wish more people could address. And, and one of the reasons that I was so excited to have you on the show is because the way that you kind of occur for me, it's like when I see you sharing at your events, when I see you sharing online, it is again that you don't shy away from talking about taboo subjects. You don't shy away from talking about race, talking about sexuality, talking about gender. And I think that we are in a place today where there is so much uh, difficulty to embrace these topics because there's so much polarity, there's so much shaming um, that makes people really afraid to say the wrong thing, to even dive in at all. And so what if you were to talk about how you synthesize this, what is your big idea? What is the thing that you wish more people could accept right now and integrate into their way of being? Thanks. That America was founded on racism and white supremacy and patriarchy and has been weaved into, systematically weaved into every institution that has then affected culture and every policy. And it's, it's deeply embedded in us. And we can't move forward in these ways that lots of us are fighting for unless we talk about and begin to heal. That's my idea that we should just even admit it <laughs> um, as like a culture. And and I think as white people, well, I don't know everything that you are as white presenting people. Um, yeah, like we can do a lot more to um, to educate each other. And then I would also. So that's my big idea. Beautiful. Period. And so buckle up. Okay. ladies and gentlemen yeah. but so and even one thing i want to do on this episode specifically is i think that there are a lot of terms that would be helpful to unpack along the way so even something like white presenting oh yeah could you actually provide a little more context of what you mean when you say white presenting sure um i think that means to me and again i mean 
I don't know. I'm not right. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'll tell you what it means to me. These are merely our opinions and yeah. perspectives. So white things. presenting is something I heard from a black person. <laughs> um, and that means um, someone, yeah, who appears to be like a Caucasian person from the looks of yeah. them on the outside. So it's like, I could, I'm whatever, Jew. We're both Jews. We're Jewish. Partially. I'm Jewish and Italian. Yeah. That's in America that looks at in America in this day and age, I look white. I am white, right? So like even I could be Spanish or Mexican, but if I look like I look, I'm I'm white presenting. So yeah. um, that's what it means. And, you know, I think that there are people that have not, you know, definitely have, quote, what we would call a person of color, like as their background, um, but they look white and as a result get treated in a way that a white person would. So this is so when we talk about this idea that that America was built on the backs of you know these patriarchal white supremacist systems, I, I really want to make sure that today we're going to really cover some ground of why it's important to acknowledge this systemic oppression to move forward in your opinion, but also be more practical about your own experience of how to navigate and facilitate these types of conversations. Totally. Because Lauren is a really incredible space holder and community builder. And so for those of you, whether you're running a company or just creating spaces where these types of honest dialogues can take place, I think that that's something that I really want to get to here. But I, at first, I just want to understand. Can I say one thing really quick? Yes, please. I actually would say that thank you for acknowledging that I do speak like truthfully out loud and and in spaces and on digital. But um, I would say when it comes to actually talking about race, it's still uncomfortable for me. Partic like, just want to say that. Like, it's um, so, yeah, like I'm afraid too. I feel afraid that my friends of color will, or even people who aren't my friends, will um, not like the way I'm doing it. Totally. Well, <laughs> so maybe, maybe even before I get back to your story, why don't we start with what's real right now, which is just that, which is the discomfort that immediately comes up when we want to talk about race. And right. so like what you just talked about, which I think is so real, mm -hmm. it's like for people who are listening to this, it's I can almost guarantee that there are people when we talk about race who immediately Cringe. get the pit in their stomach yeah, because right. they don't want to touch it. And this is, you know, one of the things here that I think is so important is just what. So what is that feeling when we talk about race? When you talk about that, it's like we're aware of the perception that if we say something wrong, mm -hmm. right, or incorrectly, if we don't appease kind of what other people perceive to be the, the right action in this scenario, that what is the fear that you think about? Because you exist in these spaces and have these types of conversations. So what do you think the fear is? And then I'll go next. That you'll do more harm. Hmm. Yeah, my fear is that I'll do more harm. I already do harm by like existing. I mean, <laughs> I mean, according to like the systems, right? Like, I, I mean, so I guess I just feel like, yeah, I don't want to cause more trouble. I want to do, I want to help us move in the right direction. And that's truly my intention. But it's funny because I understand. And I, I would say that probably men in my life feel as though they're afraid to say things around me because they think I will critique them yeah and i think that i i guess what i want to say is that i think cr criticism and feedback is so cool and generous mm. but i i think um for me it's scary when it's not done in like an open way yeah because i guess yeah i don't want to fight more i don't want to fight more yeah. like i'm doing this work because of my heart not because of like 
You know, it, it reminds me of the thing that comes up that's so visceral, and I, I hadn't equated the two until now, is so my first company was a nonprofit that did adaptive athletics. So it was sports for kids with disabilities. Cool. And at the time, I would do a lot of speaking in high schools and middle schools, and we would talk about disability awareness, of how to basically facilitate kind of environments where kids with disabilities could interact and integrate with able-bodied kids. And one of the things, like the, the central point of all my talks was just say hi. And it was the idea of... People were so afraid just instinctively that they were going to say the wrong thing or hurt mm -hmm. someone's feelings. Mm -hmm. And what they would do is they would just not have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so what it would have, like that fear mm -hmm. was the fundamental thing that was like leading to the divide mm -hmm. is because they were scared of making someone feel better doing it. But what happened is that the marginalized community, people with disabilities, were then the ones that felt the isolation mm -hmm. because of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, even for me, it's like if I speak about what that fear is here as well. It's like the idea, one of the things that I, I watched before this was the Brene Brown, like how to listen to your shame. Mm -hmm. And it was all about the distinction between shame and, and guilt. Mm -hmm. And it was the idea that shame is like the recognition of like, I am this, whereas guilt is like, I did this. It's about an identity of who we are versus like, I did something. And I think that for, for me, it's like some of the fear that if I say something on this podcast with you, that is racially insensitive, mm -hmm. that like I am a racist mm -hmm. versus like I did a racist thing. Mm -hmm. And that like the fear is that in a culture where especially, you know, with social media, that people are so quick to take others down or to be on sides and that it's tough to navigate some of this stuff where, and the, even in this conversation and hopefully for people who are listening, that like if we do do that, to speak to behaviors and not to qualify people as racist. And it's why I would even push back on the idea of... Doing harm. Well, the idea of like that the systems themselves are racist and that like we are all racist, right? Of like, and I, I want to hear your thoughts about whether we all are racist because we've grown up in systems that did have these traces of, of patriarchy, of racism kind of latent in them mm -hmm. and how to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But so... I think that like just to start here to talk about this recognition of fear and discomfort that comes up and like that is a great reason to have a conversation <laughs> to do I think what we're trying to do here yeah and not to back down yeah and, yeah I agree I agree and yeah and so for you where does this track start where uh -huh. you go from being young white Jewish female Lauren Billy opening up the conversation about race what was the moment when you realized that this was something that you needed to become aware to and start focusing some energy on well one one thing just to note which is another story but kind of related is i didn't know i was jewish till i was 20 or till recently i didn't know i was jewish until i was 21 oh cool yeah okay cool let's talk about that another podcast <laughs> <laughs> um uh okay so when i i'm i went to san diego community san diego city college i'm a first generation college student i didn't know what i was doing i went up to the registrar <laughs> and um signed up for english 101 and i forgot i don't remember how i got in it but I, it was english 101 from a black perspective and this was in like 2001 and i was the only white person in class and so it was like your basic english but every everything we read was a, a black author like african-american author not african like african-american that experience and you know everyone in class was pretty much that too and um so <laughs> that was the first time that I had ever heard, well, for one, I think ever been, yeah, like 
if we think about it, most of the books, everything that we've learned in America, for the most part in our system, has been written from a certain perspective. So it was the first time I was exposed to not only like a majority population of a different perspective than mine, but also all the reading and the professor had that perspective. So I was just like, holy, you know, like this is not what I knew. I did not know this. I did not know how bad I did not know. Like I didn't know. <laughs> Can you be more specific about some of the things that um, were enlightening to you? I, you know, maybe you've heard there's that it's kind of famous. It's like when people started talking about white privilege, there's this famous, um, like poem called like the invisible backpack. No. Oh, people should read it. I can read it, but it's, um, that was the first thing that stood out to me. It was called like the invisible backpack. And someone wrote it in the early nineties, um, a white woman professor. And it was about like, how white people get to wear this invisible backpack that has all this cool stuff in it. Like you don't get shot <laughs> or like you're not in, you're not, you're, you don't feel in danger when you X, you can go to the bank and open up like things I never thought about. I could look it up, but someone you guys should look it up. It's called like the invisible backpack of white privilege. That really stood out for me because it was the first time that I, and I think it's way more common now in our society to talk about just because of the the events over the last few years and even like the shootings of innocent black men over and over again and how they've been coming out. This wasn't happening then really, at least we didn't even have internet phone yet, <laughs> but, um, or I didn't have one. So <laughs> the white privilege backpack was like the first thing that I had seen the difference on paper of like little things that I would never notice. Yeah. Um, just think like, uh, like things that I had, that I had taken for granted because I didn't know other people didn't have them. So yeah, like opening bank accounts, feeling safe. Um, yeah, being able to find the products I need for my body and hair easily. Um, yeah, seeing m people like me in ads, like, you know, stuff like that, like basic stuff like that. Um, and I, you know, yeah, s knowing people like me were writing books and telling stories um, and when did you realize, so you start to notice these fundamental differences in terms of like how you're interacting with society. So when did you transition from this, I would call it almost like an awakening phase to one of, of action to one of activism? I think that then I was like, like, I, I can't not, I can't unlearn this. I care. Like, this is not cool. <laughs> like, I was just like, this is really uncool. Why doesn't anyone talk about this? And then I took some time doing other stuff. Um, and then I went back to college in New York and made my major. I went to like a college where you get to pick your own major. I wanted to like focus on it. So it was like about social justice around race in America and how it, um, and then like how move, how you influence, I was just like, how do we change this? Like I was more interested in like, why hasn't this changed? Why are people, I didn't understand, I think because I never had power yet or money, I didn't understand how difficult it is once you have it is to like let it up or share it. And um, I just didn't understand this enough. So it's st I was still learning and I had a lot of pain around my whiteness in college and through some of the stuff that I was doing. I was doing a lot at Rikers Island and I was feeling for the first time not welcome by black people. And I didn't get that. I didn't get that my, that, that we, like, I was like, how can you, how come you don't, I was just naively like, why don't you trust me? I'm like in this class because I care. I'm like a good white person. And, um, 
And this man who was teaching the class, who's a really powerful man who does a lot of work, who was like a Harvard, who has this crazy story about being like at Harvard for law and then getting arrested and put in jail for something he didn't do and and was in jail for a year. And like his, and now he's just like, oh man, like fuck that. I'm like doing new, you know, I'm doing this work. So he's a really powerful, amazing man. And he basically was like, I don't trust you, miss, you know, even though you're in my class. And it straight up hurt and hurt my feelings. I was like, well, how could I ever earn your trust? And he's like, every white person, and it's funny because now I relate to this around men, but every white person had always, like in his memory, had really, you know, traumatized him. Mm. And in his in his past, you know, any white people he'd been really close to. So it was up, it was really interesting for the first time to sit across from him, still show up and know that, I didn't have his trust. That was uncom- That's the pit that I'm talking about, right? To like know that I'm not liked or welcome, even though my intentions are good. And okay, so all of that went. Sorry, this is relevant. Is that is that racist was it good? of him? Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean. So this is that's an interesting thing, right? Where it's like if these people have these experiences, but if we open up to these types of generalizations based on race again, and like it's obvious to point out like white supremacy and, and oppression of African-Americans in America. But it's when we look at our experience and there are patterns and there are trends and it's helpful to understand those to make decisions about what we need to do to keep ourselves safe in our own perspective. But in, in, some, t- in some ways it's also limiting mm-hmm. for who other people can be and who we can be in, in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, for him to blanket say that you like I don't trust you because you are white, is he vindicated in that kind of thing, or like should you be judged on your behaviors? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Of mm-hmm. like, I think his experience is valid and the expression of it, but you know, I also think that you, I feel like you're entitled to a response there of like, I understand where you're coming from, and it's like. But I, so it's I think both experiences are valid. There. You know what I'm saying? No. Like, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, it was really painful, but like epic for me to just sit in that yeah. and still show up. And my other black woman professor who I came to about it, I was like, dude, he said this and it really affected me. And I just feel so bad. Like, how do I be a part of this? I'm like dedicated to it. And yeah. she was like, she kind of didn't have a nice answer. It's not that I wasn't welcome. Like she welcomed me, but she was like, it's OK that he feels that way. And I was just like, oh, but anyways, okay, listen to this. So then, and he used this story about Malcolm X when he said that to me, he was like, Malcolm was like rocking across. And I think this is in his movie or whatever. I haven't seen it, but he was like, you know, uh, Malcolm was walking across Columbia's campus, like in the heart of his movement. And this like young white woman came up and said like, Malcolm, Malcolm, like I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm like, I want to fight for you. Like. I want to use my life to fight for you. And he said, like, we don't like something like you can't. There's nothing you can do. And then so he used that story and he ended it. And I was like, oh, man, Malcolm said that, man. Everyone loves Malcolm, you know. And then later someone came up to me and they were like, dude, he didn't tell you the full story. Because the story is when Malcolm was on his deathbed, he was being which might not even be true. But there's some story about Malcolm saying that was one of the greatest regrets of his life at the end of his life and that it wasn't actually the right answer. Hmm. So I was like, oh, the motherfucker, like I can't wait till I see him again. I'm going to talk to him about it. 
So like years later, I ran into him on the subway and the I was professor. like, yeah, yeah, the professor who was like, I don't trust you. And I was like, oh my God, like I have to talk to him about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, and he's really, you know, he's powerful. He's intimidating. He's like handsome and he's a, he's just intimidating. <laughs> and so I like went up to him and I reminded myself of this idea of this girl on Columbia's campus. But I, I was like, Hey, this incident happened. It really affected me. And then I learned that like, I've always wanted to ask you what you have to say to that other part of the story. And his answer was really tender. And, um, and it was basically like, what I said to you is where I was at then. And that's where Malcolm was at when he said it to her. And like, I need to be allowed my process in, in healing. Totally. And then, so anyways, I was like, wow. And I think that's the pain about this work is that like, and this is applied to outside of race. Anytime someone's going through their own stuff, right? Like anyone's reaction to you is their own stuff, right? Sure. So all I can control is me. And like, I want people to feel good about what I do and say, but like, you know, they're not always going to. And I think this is such a, a fundamental thing to, to talk about is like this idea of where you were there to help. And it's like, and help is like about, at least for me, and you can speak for yourself, but it's like help is like, you were like, how the fuck can we change this, right? Mm -hmm. How can we move things forward? It's like, we're looking for solutions. We're looking to evolve systems. And, you know, oftentimes, like in these situations, it's like, I've had an experience like this with with women, like mm -hmm. after the Me Too movement, and we talked about it a little bit previously, of like, they were sharing stories of abuse that had never been unearthed before mm -hmm. and when guys came in and we're talking about systematically how to improve this and train our children then they're like I, shut the fuck up like i just want to i'm i'm here to tell a story of where i'm at and it's like this idea of i think again of, of understanding which one you're playing and that the idea that if someone's not heard if their experience isn't validated which is just theirs and real for them but that until someone feels like they're seen and acknowledged, whatever their experience is, wherever they're at, like then we, it's, it's going to be very difficult to move into problem solving mm -hmm. mode and like mm -hmm. to move forward. And to, I think again, when we have these types of conversations to just ask ourselves if we're truly open to acknowledging the experience of others, even mm -hmm. if we, we disagree with it. And I want to call myself out on something because what I talked about, as I said, so was that racist? that he had this, this categorization of you as a white person because of his past experience. And what do you, have you, have you done anything? I just, I just kind of looked into it briefly, but the idea of like reverse racism and can something be racist towards say uh, a dominant group, like white people, like in that place where, you know, he did make a categorization of like his response to you based off your race. Do you have any thoughts about that? Of like, is it possible for minority groups to be racist towards dominant groups? Sure. I mean, race, like the history of race in America is like, it was, it was made up. Like it wasn't a thing. I mean, there was like oppression, there was slavery, which is, was, but we were like, American or like the first settlers were using slaves of all kinds, you know, like black, white, basically it meant, and Originally, it was like European slaves who were poor people, indentured, right? Indentured servants who wanted to work um, to then be free and have land. And the deal was 
the slave owners because they're business owners essentially, right? And they want to get profit, which the slave owners uh, were like, great, they're probably going to die <laughs> within the seven years. So we're actually getting a good deal because they cost this much to get. Hmm. And, but then the slave, the indentured servants were living. Meanwhile, like another slave trade started coming from Africa and those ones were free. Um, and they were, uh, or they were cheaper. Cheaper. No, they were yeah, cheaper. cheaper. Sorry, they weren't free. Um, and they didn't have, they were life forever. <laughs> so literally, like, it was a decision to be like, okay, it was a business decision. We have to justify this. Yeah. Yes. They were like, how do we smear this? How do we create a, like a cultural belief, a tool so that we can get, we can build our empire without having to pay these people. And, um, and without, the tool the, without the moral dilemma, right? Yes. Yeah. So the, the tool was this idea of race. The tool was like, all right, like demonize them, you know? And I think that if you think about even like someone who started a rumor when you were in school or like these old folklores about something or like a PR smear campaign, that's what it was, you know? And, um, and it stuck <laughs> and um, they did it really well. And that's like how race evolved in America. And Hitler learned from us <laughs> in like the way that we did it. And so like, it's not really even real. It's like a tool. And it's like, we don't have any proof that like, the other thing is like, do we even have proof that, you know, in our country, like black people for the most part are like star athletes, right? So one might say like, why maybe that's real. Like maybe their bodies are different and, um, that's not necessarily true. It's like, <laughs> like evolution and pushing bodies into only being allowed to do one thing. And essentially that goes like, even the sports thing goes back to like being our property that entertains us, you know? Um, so like with all that said, yeah, I think that people can, you, it's possible for a majority group to decide that another majority group means something and they could decide it means negative. And um, because black people in America have been racialized for so long, I do kind of feel like, why do they get, I mean, why should I expect them to be like, all right, cool. <laughs> like, like, I don't, yeah, like, all right, cool. Like, you don't have to feel what it feels like. I'm, I'm ready to, ch to change systems with you. Thanks. You know, yeah. like, I guess I just want to understand that there, pro there probably needs to be some space. So, so let's talk about this then. If, so we're, if we're talking about systemic racism, like again, like the systems that we have evolved from, it's one of the things that I think we talked about before we even got on the show was the idea of like, is it ever, is it ever valid to call someone a racist? And I think what we're talking about right now is like that may be someone's experience in the moment and they may say that. But is it ever helpful for moving us forward? And so the idea being, my question for you is, if the system expressed like racism and the oppression of people of different races, and not just African-Americans, but, but others, does that make the people racist themselves? Or does it mean, like, what? how do we deal with that? And I think it we, makes us conditioned. Yeah. And so how do we, how do we open people up to this? without because even in Brene Brown's talk what she talks about in her research is like the idea of of shame versus guilt of like mm -hmm. you are and she talks about the reaction to shame versus guilt with the idea being 
you are linked to aggression and anger and addiction Mm -hmm. of like when people are associated with their identity with something. And then what she talks about with guilt is that like a behavior is actually associated with feelings of compassion and empathy. And so in terms of how we have these conversations, how do we, how do we approach these things, right? Of like identifying systemic racial oppression without telling someone that they're a racist? Or do you think that we should be telling people that they're racist? I don't think calling names is, I don't like think calling negative names is ever like good. Yeah. Um, Maybe valid, but not I think productive. pointing out, ex- I think the problem is one, yeah, it's so shameful that um, it's hard for white people to look at. It's so painful. I actually heard um, Coates on a panel being like dude if i was white like that shit sounds like really hard you know like to (laughs) grapple with what happened to us like like harder than us you know like he was kind of like the trauma of that kind of behavior is so like i can't even imagine what it would be like to To actually deal with yeah. yeah and i so i think that um and the defense and i feel this with men like when i try to talk about misogyny with them the defense, the immediate defense is just like, yeah, you don't want to be attacked. You don't want to be vulnerable. You don't want to look bad or wrong. So it's it's like so much of it is even about like communication. Like we were talking about at the beginning of our meeting today, but like how do we, yeah, effectively draw out the, the true facts? Like this is what happened in history. This is when race became race. This is when it applied to these people. These are laws that were made. These are laws that were made. These are laws that were made. That law went into this system. This system then became that. This president decided to do these secret things, drop drugs in this area. You know what I mean? Like it became this. They built freeways. There was redlining. Tell tell people what you're talking about with dropping drugs in Compton and the whole story. Well, there's just like, there's a lot of um, times in history. I mean, you want me to go through like everything well, I know? That's just a, that's just a, a very interesting one for people that don't know it. Of like I don't know about Compton. About well, so it was Contra. So basically, what happened is the CIA was trying to basically support a uh, coup in uh, Nicaragua, and to fund this coup without the without congressional approval, the CIA was allowing the funneling, and this is completely in secret. So. Um, Basically, so the CIA was facilitating the funneling of cocaine that was they knew was being knowingly converted into crack into primarily African-American communities in America. So it was the American government. And this is all tracked. And there's a great movie called Kill the Messenger about this. But again, these ideas of just policies or actions that were systemically impacting mm-hmm. specifically like the African-American community. Uh, not allowing yeah yeah and so it's just it's a crazy one that's very very difficult to watch and then when you look at redlining and so many other things that have happened so um yeah yeah and i mean obviously even jail you you know we've seen the movies now like about like the prison system and and even like what's happening with cannabis the history of cannabis is totally based on race too and like power and money and mexico having the having weed and like or having cannabis and the cotton industry in the plastic industry like us as in us not wanting to like have a threat 
So we like made it illegal and then smear campaigned it. <laughs> and um, and now like white people for the majority are making all the money or about to make a ton of money off cannabis. And there's still so many black people in, or, you know, people that are brown and black incarcerated for like small cannabis crimes. It's just so messed up. So I guess I think that it would just be cool if like, it, probably if I wasn't building all bodies and some of it, I would love to just like work really hard on making this information really easy to understand yeah. and just outline it rather than like say, I don't know, rather than blame, but rather just explain like dot to dot how this happened. And then you can look and be like, oh, that's why this many people in black Amer in America are incarcerated that have this skin. That's why they don't, you know, that's why men are being killed. That's why trans black women are like, in the most danger ever. <laughs> so I so I completely agree with you. I think that, and you talked, one of, one of my favorite just kind of drivers of like all action is just the discovery of truth of like what, what has happened, how has that impacted people? And so you've talked about your own awakening, your own activism as it relates to race. And so when we think about why it is important for people to consider this and to have this conversation, why do you think it is, actually I'm more curious, how does this then impact how you act in the world and the decisions that you make. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and speak personally. And then I think I want to bring that out to kind of the more of the macro, mm -hmm. but how does this knowledge impact how you act in the world that is important for what you do and, and what you're building? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's given me so much info. I never learned that it's making me like question, critically question everything I believe to be true, including like, I mean, why do I shave my legs? <laughs> Why do I have toenail polish on? Because male advertisers told you it was gross. Yeah, and I mean, essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, okay, so knowing that, do I want to still? Or like, because the truth is, I do live in this society. I, like, if I go anti-anti, like, I'll never quote get a man. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's like, how do you live? You're, we're living in the middle of it while examining it, you know? And it's, so it's just like, so I would say for me, how it affects me is I'm examining all the things that I believe and trying to check myself. And I'm surrounded by other people who are different than me and also checking themselves. And we're having, and I'm having these conversations a lot. Um, I'm reading stuff. I'm looking like, it's really important to me, I guess, because I don't think it's okay. It's not okay with me. <laughs> like, I don't want to live in us. I don't want to be a part of it if I'm not trying to make it different. Yeah. And um. so, and then it affects like, yeah, who I date. I have a, I have a hard time dating white men unless like they're really down to have this conversation. And it's hard to have this, you know, it's, so I would say it affect, the more I learn, the more it affects like my, relationship with white people mm. i feel like that thing that's you know i mean and and that's probably where i can have the biggest impact um well I, tell me more because you talked about the parallels of some of these experiences that you've had in the realm of activism as it relates to race and then your own personal relationship with men yeah and with gender so potentially it's a a good place to transition a little bit. And so what are the parallels of your exploration of race as it relates to gender? Well, it's the first, it's cool because, um, it intersect, like the, the powers intersect and, um, there are aspects of like a black male's experience that are more privileged than mine. Yeah. 
And then there are aspects of my experience that are way more privileged than theirs. And then black women are basically at the bottom and they have the most, <laughs> the most difficult experience in America. Can you explain intersectionality for people who aren't familiar with the term? Like, I mean, again, like, what does that even mean? What I mean is like, um, what it means to me. Because there's also like a whole class of people that are like, don't say intersectional. That means that like two things. And, um, and there's more than two things. Um, I think it's. I think it's just trying to say like this stuff is nuanced and things bleed together. And so obviously like if I'm a disabled black, I don't know, like tall person, I might have some powers because I'm tall, but like I'm blind. So then I like lose a lot of power and I'm black. So whatever, like there's all of these things that um, define identities that define someone's experience and how they're treated by mainstream society. And I think that, um, yeah, inter some of, yeah, sometimes there's more than one. And that to me would be what intersectional means. What do you think it means? I think that intersectionality just basically accounts for all of the identities that someone associates with their experience and acknowledges differences in kind of like the general experience of specific identities within a specific kind of culture or society. And one thing that I think is important for our conversation as well and especially as we move to something like gender is I think we're having a conversation about America because if we talk about race and we talk about gender in different countries, mm -hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge that there's just fundamental differences, totally. right? So it's like, if we talk about patriarchy, I'm talking about America here, for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And it's like the idea of, we talk about patriarchy in America. It's like, that means one specific thing. And then if you go to like North India, it means a very different thing. Totally. And so, um, so yeah, so when you when you transition into so that's that's what I think intersectionality is, and it, it brings up a, an important question for me about identity in general and whether you know these can in many ways limit our perception of who people are. Is that if we open up a conversation to allow for people to talk about these experiences, especially those of marginalized communities that have not been as exposed in the public as discussed as uh recognized and celebrated appreciated um that it's important but at the same time if we just associate people with these cultural identities that in some ways i also believe that it is limiting mm -hmm. to being able to acknowledge people for who they really are mm -hmm. of like i am a white straight caucasian male and those are parts of my identity. But if we focus so much on just those things, like what aspects of me am I leaving out? Totally. You know what I mean? And I think is one of the, the important things to, to talk about here of like when we are evolving to a place where we can consider these identities, these parts of the being that, you know, and mass do have, a, I think, implications for, for how we act and what our experience are. But what are the other identities that we can associate ourselves with is an important one. And so, but I want to shift back to the idea of, of patriarchies because you've talked a little bit about your experience in race. And so when you think about patriarchy, again, just as a, an introduction to this conversation, what do you, and now I'm going to be, well, I'll say, what is your opinion of what is the patriarchy for people who don't have a good understanding of what that is? Um, It's funny because you said all this other stuff that I'm like, yeah, totally. I want to share stories. Um, we'll go back to intersectionality. And uh, okay. To me, patriarchy is the 
I guess I'm going to use the word system again, like this, the, the system of having men in power only, uh, you know, like disproportionately, disproportionately men in power. And then, um, the advancement of men. Yeah. And, and, and as a result, yeah, all decision, because they've been all the decision makers. Um, yeah, their advancement and continued power is priority. (laughs) And so one of the things that, so we had another guest on the show and we talked about a little bit last time, this guy, Warren Farrell, who talks about how, as it relates to something like patriarchy and that maybe even for racism and that the idea of, if we look at collective healing, that these types of generalizations, something like patriarchy, again, limits our ability to see an individual for who they are because it is it is identifying people as an oppressor like the individual as opposed to speaking to necessarily a system. So what are your thoughts about like, is that, why is that term or that concept important for people to understand and integrate into their experience? I think, and this goes to you uh, briefly touching on identity, identity politics or identity, which I'd love to, again, if that's important or not, I think my answer will be related to both, but, um, the truth is, I, I, I really, my womanness, like my experience on earth from 1983 till now, as a girl, like, you know, as being told I'm a girl, is, a, is crucial to who I am. It's crucial. Like, it's very much defined a lot of my life. And I can't escape it. And, I, and it's my understanding that a black person feels that, like their blackness is crucial to in that for us to sit in a room and not acknowledge that those experiences are quite different because of where we all grew up it's like we can't get to the next level until until like it's at least acknowledged like Mm. that that experience is different and important for us all to think about and i think that that's that's actually the evolved because otherwise see i feel angry if like i don't get to acknowledge what my experience as a woman and this i think happens to black people a lot and even me being like let's figure out solutions now and him being like wait i don't want it with you um and me respecting that i think is like really big i need the space yeah i need the space for you to acknowledge that i have a special experience because of being a woman and having a vagina that has caused me specific experiences and you vice versa in this country at this time and it is related to men being in the most power and i'm not saying that i don't think it's men's fault i mean i don't think like you're demonized for being a part of like yeah again and i think that goes back to like racist and what it even means like i don't think that men are bad i think and i think the guy you were just referencing we might have talked about this last weekend but um believes that he so warren who came on the show to kind of rehash this was an interesting idea so warren has an interesting story where he was like one of the most pronounced and popular feminists like first male feminist truly and speaking around the world he's on the the board of uh it's either now or wow in new york city one of the the leading kind of feminist organizations and so he was a, a real leader in second wave feminist movement and then he got removed from the board of that organization because as a fam- marriage and family therapist, there was some 
legislation that was moving through the court system about granting parents uh, equal custody, split custody in divorce proceedings where both parents were fit. And at the time, one of the areas where women did have were treated favorably, which was not a lot of places in society at the time, was there where they were primarily getting sole custody. And he was like, well, this actually is a marriage and family therapist. doesn't make sense with what's beneficial for the kid. And so we should support legislation that basically supports the kid and is just fair. And he was saying, like, as a feminist organization, we are fighting for equality, not unfair treatment of women. It's equality for all people. And it became a big hubbub. And then he kind of started to talk about how, in some ways, this type of advocacy for a specific identity, in this case, women, would come at basically kind of the the detriment to something else. And so what he talks about is the idea of patriarchy. And what he would say is that the idea that there has been this uh, calculated system of male dominance by all guys, it negates kind of the complicity of both people into, rather than a male-dominated system, a survival system of that if we go back to early civilization where we are literally at war, you have you know the need for tribal communities to actually go on hunts. And so it was not males controlling women. It was this basically desire to survive. And to survive, you just naturally needed to create more rigid gender systems within your communities where men took on these more sacrificial roles where they were actually going out on hunts. Like they were literally in a role where they were exponentially more likely to die in service of the tribe. And then you had women who were taking on these nurturing roles to actually just kind of raise the kin. And to actually survive, there was just a limited kind of like binary of the role that people could occupy. And then as you move through like ancient civilizations into modern times, you can almost think about it as the idea of protecting kind of moving into providing of how did you protect your family in modern times? It was through finances. And this correlates to the, the feminist distinction, second wave feminist distinction of power, which is access to capital. Mm -hmm. And so in the eyes of second wave feminists, it's, you women did not have you know representation in the workplace they did not have the rights or the cultural kind of get a credit card till like 1975 crazy i didn't know that and so you know in this place where women did not have any power but it's also the idea that even in modern times is that there were these specific roles where men were going to jobs that were not rewarding or fulfilling and there was only like again the same way that we have kind of this kind of concentration of capital at the very top of people who are truly in control, who are decision makers, is that men were thrust into these roles in the workplace where they were sacrificing themselves to provide for their family because that was the societal expectation of what people needed to do. And that now we're moving into a place where that baseline survival instinct, you know, is not there and we no longer need these rigid gender roles that say anyone really has to play any role it's like becoming more aware of like masculine and feminine being gender androgynous and more fluid and like different people can occupy that. And that, you know, that those rigid spaces for gender like are no longer necessary. And it's why we're finally kind of evolving past them for survival, for survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now it's like to survive. It's it's not there. So now we're talking not so much about survival, but we're talking about transcendence and we're talking about expansion and, and elevating consciousness. And so. But yeah. I, as someone who's on experience oppression, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like it is gone. I mean, like it's changing slowly, but like, I don't think that we're there yet. Like as someone who's raising money, 
I don't think that we're there yet. He, I don't think it's true. I don't think the systems have like dissolved. <laughs> I would agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love his idea and I do think things are sl- slowly changing. Um, I think so. What, what he would say is, and I would agree with you. And even when I had him on, I like push back and I was like, but there are some pretty extreme examples of, again, how this oppression is. So it wasn't just like that women weren't kind of given access to the workplace, but it's, again, it's like real oppression in terms of like the right to vote, to like actually be safe from being beaten, you know, and like different things like this that just women weren't protected. And so they're very real oppression that did exist, but he just talks about again about- Does. More so than does. That more so than the idea of again, like one thing I was reading about recently was like the idea of like white fragility. And like, I don't, I don't remember the, the woman's name who, who promotes the idea, but of just blanket calling everybody racist, which like on, on, like when I received that and I'm like, I feel like there's a way to express that more effectively. Yeah. And I see where she's coming home, but the same idea of like all identifying all men as oppressors, it, it is counterproductive to opening up a conversation, not even where we can like move forward, but where people can really hear, uh, hear one another. And so that would be his thing there. Of, like, and that the, goes back to what you were like, well, how do we, I mean, you're, why do you care? Or like, how do you think we should start moving forward? C- communication. And, and it's a place where I hit walls. Like I, because of my own pain, like I hit walls because I have emotion when I try and communicate about it. But the per the the person that you're trying to like educate or move forward with is going. It just seems innate to be defensive, and they don't want to be called a name. So like, how do? And that's when I was saying like maybe it would be better to like make it really easy to to um to see these systems and how they affect lives through stats and through like facts, <laughs> like you said, truth. And 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 then and then be like, do you see? And also, I'm just sharing my experience. This is my experience. Like, can you validate that? And then, like, what does it feel like to hear that? I mean, I get, yeah, it's like there's so much. It's very uncomfortable to be the person that's being called a name. And it's not going to work, <laughs> like, to um, to go about any change by, like, name calling. So then maybe what comes up to me is, again, is when we use these terms of patriarchy, of, like, racism again is like speaking to the idea of it's we can point to specific elements within a system that were racist (laughs) slavery was racist if we look at like women not being able to vote that was that was a patriarchal system at play that favored men's advancement within society and that when we talk about systems like actual like systems that basically had these traces of white supremacist patriarchy yes that we can talk about behaviors that are patriarchal that are racist but that again i think we're coming back to what we started with is that like the the identification of someone with those things of like the idea uh i think renee dressed is a white no that's not that's a another reporter but she talks about like the white fragility is the idea that again like that all white people have been exposed to this, this position of privilege and that their own uh, discomfort when talking about these things is in and of itself a form of oppression to keep uh, minorities from expressing themselves. And what I would say is that like, by calling someone a racist right off the bat, that she's creating the response 
the discomfort, the fear that makes it even more difficult to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is coming back to. But then it's annoying. And I remember, you know, black women being like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of doing the work to deal with your emotional shit about my experience, you know, and for doing the work to like explain to you what I'm going through. And sometimes I get that as like, maybe that's just the deal as a woman who wants to like talk to men about this stuff. Like I'm tired and I hit so many walls and I have to do so much like explaining because no one will fucking look it up themselves, like, mm. you know, and because it doesn't affect them. Why should they? You know, and I guess that's why I'm like interested in doing race work, because like I should because I actually care. Like what is this is such an interesting one of it's like I, I just had a conversation with with one of my close black friends recently. And I and I talked with this. I think I knew we knew we were going to do this podcast. And I remember that I posted something on Instagram and I was talking about uh I was talking about transgender rights and I was just like talking about how, you know, I had asked one of my trans friends, uh, like a question and they very graciously said, it's like, you know, just being asked the question. And I, I didn't ask it because we're close with kind of like an openness of like, would this be something you're open to talking about? I just kind of asked the question Mm -hmm. and it was like the assumption that you can just ask someone about their experience with like the expectation that they'll tell you about it, which is like, you talked about the, the drain of having to explain your experience over and over again. Uh-huh. And so how do you, how do you, how do you <laughs> There's do so many rules? Well, that's what, so how do you do that? But that was probably traumatizing for you. You're like, Oh shit. Like now what do I do with like, well, that's, so that's, so how do we, how do you do that? How, I think one of the most helpful things that we could even just explore would be how to open up these types of conversations between people of different races for people. And you can do obviously your own research and you can do so much of this by just going online or going on YouTube, but to actually have these types of conversations with people of diverse identities, whether this is a man talking to a woman about the patriarchy, you know, whether this is like me talking to a Hispanic person about uh, oppression, it's how do, what do in your own work, what have you seen to be effective ways to open up these conversations in a conscientious way? Um, yeah, I think it's literally like the only way to exist <laughs> in the climate. I think, and I think we're trying to build a company this way. Um, I think it's to like acknowledge straight up, like the nuance in everyone's experience, like that, that we understand that we aren't just one identity and that we don't know anything about the person I'm looking at really. Like, and like, I think to start by saying we acknowledge that there are many layers to every person or for myself, I acknowledge that I have a lot of layers and that whoever I'm talking to has a lot of layers and I have no idea most of them and that that's everything they're bringing to a conversation. And then also acknowledge that like, I'm super imperfect and going to make mistakes and that's a part of the package and like but I'm sitting here I'm standing here like on the bridge because I'm interested in having like um, a true and honest growth and connection with people with other people with other humans and um, and that's real and like you can believe that or not but like that's where I'm coming from and so will you join me on the bridge and like it might be messy yeah but like, I won't leave and you'll be safe, hmm. you know, or like, or like I'll do everything I can to make sure that like you feel safe. Totally. 
And one thing I love what you said is that, and I won't leave is like the idea of if we hit discomfort or disagreement is, um, the idea that the articulation of if something gets hairy in a conversation, this would be relevant for a personal relationship or anything else, but for something to get contentious and then for one party to remove themselves, I hate that is the worst thing that we can do. I agree. (laughs) I hate that shit. And so, and it's the idea of like, sometimes it's actually beneficial where if we get to a place where we, we aren't sure what we think or we're angry and it's just causing us to react in a way, the idea of saying, that you can remove yourself from a situation, but clarify that I'll be back. Mm-hmm. It's because it's the idea of just leaving it in that unknown, in that kind of challenging state that's so challenging. But if you're in one of these conversations, the idea of like, I'm I'm leaving to gather my thoughts, but I'm going to come back. Mm-hmm. So we can do this when it's actually beneficial mm-hmm. is I think a really powerful way to do this as opposed to just leaving. Mm-hmm. Is that that's not serving you. It's not serving anyone else. And so... You know, one thing I, I, and we're kind of moving towards a close here. And so in this vein of like what you just talked about is kind of like braving that of like allowing yourself to be judged and opening up to that. I think that one thing that I would just say here again is, is just to be conscientious of our own experience and how we're interacting with this, of the desire to label people and how easy that is. And whether we do that ourselves or whether we experience it, then I think that it's important to understand that these types of gross classifications of people, like I saw an article title the other day and it said, if you voted for Trump, you're a racist. And I was like, well, that's fucking not true and mm-hmm. counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Like, sure. I get it that some of these experiences and outbursts like are valid and mm-hmm. anger is valid for mm-hmm. people who've experienced oppression, but that we can acknowledge the experience of others and meet people there if they just want to be heard but that this kind of name calling and other stuff is not labeling people and who they are is not beneficial to really opening people up to moving forward. And, um, you know, I think we just touched the surface today, but for people who are trying to create these spaces or for people who are moving forward and hear this from you, what would be something that you hope they, they took away from this or that they really, the note that they leave on? Um, I would ask that if you're, if you identify, I think doing, yeah, I think doing the work to really learn and unlearn, realize that everyone that wrote a book that we were taught in school, like all had, you know, a really specific identity. I, I do want to talk about it. <laughs> and um, and if, if you're interested in like, you know, the truth is the world behind us is we're like, that identity, the, the by um, the polarizing identity is changing and like, it won't last very much longer. So like, because literally the population is becoming brown, right? Mm. And like Gen Z doesn't even care about gender. Like it's, you know, it, like we as millennials will be able to design some new systems, but like it's it's over. I mean, like Trump is kind of like some of the last, right? They're going to literally die. <laughs> like the people who are still deeply believing in some of these ideas. So I guess I just feel like either... If you're interested in hearing the perspective of people whose perspectives have not been whole, have been, have been, haven't given, been given the mic, um, ask them and ask them from a vulnerable place and really listen and then do extra work to like read people's perspectives that aren't yours 
And um, it would mean so much to me if like men were like, hey, I've been reading about misogyny and I see it in me and I want to talk to you about it. That would like mean so much to me. <laughs> and um, it, just like them being interested in what it's like to be um, in this world at, with a vagina. Yeah. Um, it's just really nice. So yeah, if you want to build like relationships, that would be like really meaningful, I think if you if you want to build like deep and understanding relationships and and also just thanks for listening to me <laughs> and also i have a lot of books and stuff i could recommend if later well if, so if you were to get people started in the past so we've talked about a few we talked about what is it 13 state is van jones movie that just came out on like the criminal justice system oh i didn't i mean yeah wait it's new I think or the it old out, one it came out last year the one right? on netflix yeah the one on netflix 13 13 yeah Okay, what about it? Well, oh, that's you, good. If book. you were going to recommend, because you talked about just the awakening of what are the things that have been most influential for you and your own personal awakening. And one thing that I would say here again, of like one of our guests who was previously on talked about perspective and just again, the power of seeing it a different way. And just in terms of exploring reality as we know it, it's like, again, if you just look at your bookshelf and you say, like how many of the books that I have read over the past couple of years are by women or by African-Americans. And like I had a friend who did that recently and I looked at it and I was like, well, shit, all of my books over the past two years were white guys. And I was like, interesting. What does that mean? And what's a book that I'm interested in just to put it in there? And, um, you know, it's a powerful exploration, but I'm actually curious. So for the people that are listening, particularly as Americans, we're like, our whole thing is like, we're a, we're a mashup, right? So tell me, so what would be some of the things that have either influenced you or that you would highly recommend? And we'll have show notes with the Invisible Backpack and some of the other great stuff that you mentioned. But what would be a few of the the books or movies that have been most enlightening for you? James Baldwin. Yeah. What specifically? The Fire Next Time. Yeah. Um, and I Am Not Your Negro, the movie that came out oh, yeah. two years ago. Um, yeah. James Baldwin is a huge, 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 amazing. Oh, there's this um, debate. I forgot who he debates. He debates this like white British guy. It's famous. You can watch it on YouTube. Yeah. I can write this stuff down and give it to you for after, but um, there's a debate you can watch on YouTube. That's really, he's just really smart. And um, he was queer, which I think is good and interesting because it just, it, he like cuts through the masculinity thing. Um, he's really, really smart. <laughs> so I would say, reading him um you know i've been diving into this gender stuff the books i'm reading are kind of obscure and they're like you know <laughs> i mean yeah i've been reading this book by kate mann called down girl yeah it's something about like it's a new look on misogyny and but it's like an academic book it's not like easy to read i mean read it down girl it's really creepy and interesting um and then i've been reading which i can't even read because it's so painful to read um um what's her name jennifer it's called good and mad yeah the revolutionary power of woman's anger it's really hard for me to read it because it makes me angry and i and i don't feel like there's space for me to be angry and Mm -hmm. the whole book is about that and i like can't read it because i'm like "Ah!" but um (laughs) But it would be cool if you're also like a straight man to read it and be like, wow, have I done that to women when they're upset? And like maybe women cry. Like it talks about even like why women cry. They're often angry and they're crying and why. And it's just really dynamic. And she's a smart writer. So 
I'm Those gonna, are two I'm books go- I've been reading now. I'm going to force Lauren to create I'll create a list. Lauren's list. I actually have a I, secret person who um, I have a book club with who's amazing. Maybe he should be on your... It's a man. He should be on your podcast, but he's like a historian by hobby, and he helps me find these books. Cool. Yeah. All right, so we're going to do a top 10 list of cool. what you can do to just rock And podcasts. There's yeah. amazing... Po- yeah, I'll write it down. Okay. Beautiful. Cool. Well, Lauren... That was a long time. Sorry for the long pod. Not at all. Okay. That was great. And I think, again... Um, you know, what we talked about and where we started at was like there, there's latent discomfort in having these conversations. And that is a perfect reason to have a conversation and to dive in and to allow yourself to be wrong and to avoid labeling people so that we can create spaces where other people can do this as well. So thank you. Thank for you. you. For all you're doing. Should we do a high five? High five. I hope you guys could hear that. <laughs> Signing off. See you next time. Bye.